folks. Welcome to Sailing and Cruising the East Coast of the United States podcast. I'm the host for this episode, and I'm Balaam Usitz. My co-host, Mike, is not available this week, so I'm doing this one solo. You know, this is our podcast about sailing and cruising the East Coast of the United States. In some episodes, we focus on passages and destinations, and in other episodes, we talk about boats, equipment, and techniques. And in this episode, we have an interesting person we're going to uh, talk to. So we have a guest, <clears throat> and this guest's name is Bob Foreman. It turns out Bob and I have known each other uh, kind of from a distance um, on and off for a number of years. Uh, we first met when I was working at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, uh, and he's a gra- he and I are both graduates of that uh, fine uh, in- engineering school. And uh, our paths crossed because he was doing some volunteer work uh, there, and I was uh, running the business incubator at that time. And uh, we kind of struck up a friendship, and uh, then we sort of parted ways and uh, didn't uh, interact at all. And then uh, by chance, uh, we met again a few weeks ago. So I thought uh, it'd be great to have him on the podcast. And uh, I'll tell you why. This guy's got a lot of sailing experience. He's a veteran of many, many Newport to Bermuda races, and he's also a veteran of two transatlantic races called Transat, which is actually the oldest ocean race. First one went off in 1866. So he's quite an accomplished sailor, cruised all around the East Coast of the United States, and uh, has a pretty uh, extensive and impressive racing resume as well. Um, So uh, I have him on for uh, two episodes, and uh, it was a long conversation we had. Uh, We talked about all sorts of things, and um, in this first one, first episode, which is this one, um, the first uh, seven or eight minutes of the episode is Bob and I sort of reminiscing and talking about old times, and then we sort of dived into uh, the sailing stuff. And I decided to leave the conversation in there where we were reminiscing because it's just a way of uh, you guys to get to know us, me, and Bob a little better. So I thought it was valuable. If you don't like that, just kind of fast forward through that and you can dive into the sailing stuff. Uh, so this is the first episode. The next episode will follow. It's basically a continuation of our conversation. Uh, so I hope you enjoy it. Uh, it was, uh, certainly good talking with him and, uh, I had a, a, a great time. So, uh, give the episode a listen. Thanks. I'm trying to remember when we saw each other last. It was probably when you left the, uh, incubator. Yeah. That yeah, was I so think... frustrating. That was so frustrating. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. You know, um, it could I have think, been such a gold mine for RPI. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, part of the president's job, whether you agree with it or not, is to is to lead the organization and decide where they're going to go and where they're not going to go. And uh, those decisions were made. When when you look at what it costs to build the impact center. Yeah, yeah. And what it would have cost to keep the do a nice job on the incubator. Yeah. And plus, I mean, Stu and I worked. At no charge, you know. Yeah. It cost them anything. Yeah. 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 Well, it is what it is. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So, looks hey, like, thanks. Looks like you, 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 
you know, sometimes bad things turn into good things, you know? Yeah. It, it, didn't, it didn't work out for you there. You left and started a venture capital group and ready to retire. Yeah. You know? uh, Simon got frustrated. He and left. left. Yeah. And uh, started a company at a liquidity event and is doing, you know, now has a nice business refurbishing or restoring, rather restoring buildings in downtown Troy. So yeah. Yeah. You know, it's worked out for both, both of you guys. Well, you know, uh, I've always embraced change. Yeah. I, I'm one of those folks. Okay, that's fine. Time to go <laughs> do something else. Yeah. And uh, that's always, it, it, knock on wood, it's worked out for me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, I have enough, I've always had enough self-confidence that, you know, if, if I got to go figure out how to do something else, and uh -huh. I've also had a lot of varied interest. So, you know, that helped energize me. I'll yeah. go figure out how to do something else. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's about what I wound up doing there. Yeah. Because I was already retired. Right. Yeah. Right. So I I got on the board of Gentipa, which is the largest home health care and hospice company in the country. Yeah. Yeah. That worked out well. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to I'd like to do a little bit more of that. Yeah. I, I've I've been on a, a handful of boards. Um, you know, of course, with the venture business, um, I'm on all the boards that I led, all the investments I led. So that's right. that's been pretty good. That's great experience. Yeah, but those are all, you know, I those are all done. Right. And uh, I've been on a couple not-for-profit boards, a hospital board, et cetera. Right. And uh, if I could find a, a board or two, or maybe even three to get involved with, um, I would enjoy that. Yeah. How old, how old are you now, Bella? Uh, I'll be 69 in, in another 30 days. Young kid. Yeah. yeah. Young well, kid. age is a relative, age is a relative number. Right. It's a relative <laughs> number. But you, right. still, you still have runway to get on a, a major cup. You know, most boards have, you know, uh, sunset rules where you got to retire. Mm, yes. I think a lot of them now are 75. Yeah. 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 So. Yeah, if something if something comes along that that'd be great. I'd enjoy it. Uh, I'm I'm certainly not looking for full time employment. I'm I'm enjoying retiring yeah. or retirement. I'm sailing a lot. Um, you know, doing other things that I I really enjoy doing. So it's been great. So what, what kind of boat do you have? So I have a a Hunter 45 uh -huh. oh, that I keep uh, on on Narragansett Bay. Right. Uh, great coastal cruiser, which is what, what we do, what my wife yeah. and I and my, my kids do, yeah. uh, you know, it's spacious, it's big, yeah, yeah. uh, it sails reasonably well. Right, right. And, uh, it works, it really works well for us. Yeah, good, good. And, uh, so yeah, so that's a, that's been a lot of fun for sure. Right. Yep. Just kind of bopping around, uh, Narragansett Bay and Long Island Sound and Buzzards Bay and. Uh, you know, that, that's pretty much what we do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I actually, uh, speaking of Simon, uh, so, you know, si Simon bought a boat with very little sailing experience right. and, um, he bought it in Florida and, and I helped Simon and his son Sawyer bring it up from Florida. Did you? Yeah. So it was the three of us. Yeah. And that was a combination of, uh, outside and coming up the ICW as well. It's kind right. of, we bounce back and forth depending upon weather and stuff. But uh, that was, you know, 
a, a, a an old boat. It was a, a Passport 40. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I don't remember what year it was, but, uh, you know, they haven't been made. Those boats haven't been made for a while. And uh, so, yeah, we we blazed off on that and had a blast. Yeah. Yeah. So you two maintain contact. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So we still run into each other on occasion. And uh, we have a group that includes uh, Mark Rice, uh-huh. uh, Chuck Rancourt, uh, Glenn Dole, uh, Jerry, uh, myself, and Simon. So basically all former incubator directors. <laughs> and was was uh, Rice, was he? He was. He was He was one of the incubator directors. Yeah. Uh-huh. Before he was, before he became a professor. Oh. Yeah. So we get together, uh, you know, once a year, maybe twice a year. Yeah. What's he uh, doing now? So he's uh, he left RPI and went to Babson, right? Uh, and became a dean at Babson, and then uh, left dean of the graduate program at, at Babson. Then left Babson and went to Worcester Poly, and became dean of the business school in Worcester Poly, and then. Uh, Retired from there, and uh, I think was retired for like well, the, the six, president six, of Worcester wasn't wasn't she a part from RPI? Yes, yes, yeah. she was. Yeah, and, and so yeah, so Mark was there during that time. Right, and uh, then he uh, got uh, was retired about six months and, and got a call from Babson, and he was provost at Babson for uh, quite a period of time. Yeah. And then uh, he recently sort of stepped down from that and uh, I think is kind of, you know, teaching about half time these days at Babson still. Yeah. Good for him. So, yeah. So so when Mark went to Babson, um, Bill Stitt, he, he sort of hired Bill Stitt and I <laughs> uh, to teach in this uh, accelerated uh, MBA program that they uh-huh. had there. Uh, for, you know, sort of experienced professionals. So it was, you know, mid-career folks. Right. And, and so we, we kept in touch because of that. We'd see each other. We, we would, Bill and I co-taught uh, I th- six sessions, uh, six, three day six, let me rephrase that, six one and a half day sessions. So this was one of those weekend MBAs. Right. And, you know, it amazed me because this just talks to you about, you know, the, the notion of, Picking something you want to be really good at and and raising that flag up high, which yeah. is what Babson did. I mean, they picked entrepreneurship. I mean, they had good timing. But this part, this uh, MBA program, <laughs> which was a, a hybrid program, meaning it was some of it was online and some of it was face to face. The students would come to Babson uh, once a month for one and a half days. They'd fly in Friday. They'd arrive on Friday. Uh, they usually had some kind of an event Friday evening, usually a guest speaker or something that have classes all day Saturday and half a day Sunday, and then they'd fly home. Right. There were people who came from India for this. Holy smokes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There, wow. there was two people from India, uh, one person from the UK. <clears throat> I mean, it's just remarkable, right? And it, and it it goes to show you that I think you're much better off being one of the best in the world at one thing right. than, than trying to be sort of slightly, slightly above average in a whole bunch of stuff. Right. 
Well, that was a good, that was a, a uh, great thing that Rice thought up. Yeah. Yeah. To do that. Good you program. Because it really fills it, a niche where somebody wants to get an MBA and they have a full-time job or they're running right. their own company. Right. They, they could go there and get a lot of exposure. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. <clears throat> yep. Very good. So let's talk about sailing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, let me do a quick intro. Uh, yeah. and then, I'm not sure how this works. Uh, this is the first time I've done something like this. So. We, we're, we're just going to do exactly what we've been doing. And that's <laughs> just have a conversation. Okay. But uh, let me do a, Let me just do a quick intro. Um, and then uh, we'll, we'll take it from there. Hello, listeners. Welcome to Sailing and Cruising the East. I'm your host for this podcast, Bela Musitz. Today's guest is Bob Foreman. Uh, Bob's a very experienced blue water and coastal sailor. Uh, he's got some, also got some great race experience, including two transatlantic, two transatlantic, Atlantic, boy, that's a mouthful, including two transatlantic races. Uh, and it's uh, in the transat, as it's called, it's the world's oldest ocean race. And the first one took place in 1866. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Bob. Thank you, Bella. Yeah. So uh, tell me a little bit about sort of how you got started in, in sailing. I'm, I'm always kind of curious about sort of, you know, what were the beginnings? What was the germination of this desire to go sailing? Well, my family had a sailfish, which is sort of like a sunfish. Yeah. So that was the first thing. That's what I started on. <laughs> then uh, went in the Navy and the, was assigned to an ocean-going minesweeper. Mm. And I was home ported in Panama City, Florida. And the officers club had a USS Cumshaw, which is a 19 foot fish class sailboat. So whenever I wanted, I'd call up the bosun of the watch and say, I want to take the Cumshaw out and they'd have it all set up and everything. And when I came in, I'd say this has to be fixed or that has to be fixed. Yeah. So it was a great time. And St. Andrews Bay is very much like the Great South Bay. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not too deep. You know, it's sheltered, but you, you have the thermal winds. So you have good wind and uh, nice, nice places to sail. Yeah. So that, that was the beginning. Then uh, the first boat that I bought myself, my wife and I were getting, going to get married. It was about six weeks prior to the wedding. And the deal was supposed to be that I, I would sell my car and we'd buy living room furniture. <laughs> well, I did sell my car, but we didn't buy living room furniture. I figured uh, it's so close to the wedding, I could do just about every, anything except rob a bank. So <laughs> I, I bought a, a night, another 19 foot wooden old sailboat. And I was so excited, I didn't even check the sails. And the sails had all sorts of holes in them and everything else. But yeah. I fixed it. I fixed that with tape and sailed it for a year or so without that and then got sails for it. Then the, the third, the third, the second boat, uh, I won a sales contest. And uh, the prize was $10,000 $10, or 
a two-week all-expense-paid trip around the world. Oh, wow. So I convinced my wife that you don't really want to do this. And she was not really into flying at that time. So we went and bought a 28-foot sailboat, Morgan 28. Nice, nice, nice boat. Yeah. Then the, the next the, the next boat was a 38-foot Morgan. And uh, where were you where were you sailing these boats, Bob, at this time? Where were you living? Um the 28-foot boat, the Morgan 28, uh, we sailed, I sailed it on a bay. Did a lot of racing. One, and, one, and when you say bay, what bay are you talking right about? South Bay. And that's in New Jersey? No, that's in Long Island. Long like, Island. Like right now we live on the Great South Bay. Okay. Like fire, you know, to, to set a location, the Fire Island Lighthouse is 5.8 miles south of us. So when we sit down at the dining room table, we see the lighthouse flashing. Oh, wow. So that's on the north side of Long Island. I am. The North Shore. Yeah. No, no. The north. I'm on the north side of the Great South Bay. Okay. And Fire Island, Fire Island Lighthouse is on Fire Island. Got right. it. So the 28, we we raced on the bay, won a lot of trophies, uh, and we cruised it uh, to the islands. You know, Block Island, Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket, Newport, uh, Bristol, etc. Okay. Yeah. Uh, then from there we bought a, a Morgan 38, and we raced that on the bay, which, but it was difficult because it displaced too much water and you get bottom action, which would slow you down. But, mm. but we still won a lot of races, you know. And then we started doing offshore races, you know, Block Island race, the Vineyard race, Block Island race week, uh, Sandfire race, right? Um, and so did did you do these on all this racing on your boat? Yes. Yeah, it's always on always on my boat. Yeah. Okay. And then after, after that, uh, we cracked the hull, falling off a wave coming out of the Gulf Stream. You know, and I didn't realize it was cracked at the time. I knew that we fell a long way, and I could just feel the, the boat go like that. Mm. But when the boat went in the yard, uh, Steve Bryce, who owned the yard, called me up. He says, Bob, did you hit a buoy? I said, no, I never hit a buoy. He says, yeah, I guess he, re he didn't. But there's a crack in the side of the hull, you know, right right where the chimes are. Um, and it's down to the last level, last layer of fiberglass. Wow. So uh, and when, we, when we went out in the ocean with the boat, the boat would oil can. And you could see the dining room table going up and down. <laughs> that's so, that's not a reassuring feeling. <laughs> my, my wife, my wife uh, said, I, I can't stop you from going out on a boat, but the kids aren't going with you. So that put a hole in my balloon. But I figured a way out. You know, uh, We went and contracted for a, a Hinkley Southwest 42. Mm, very nice. And Hinkley had... Hinkley had built two competition boats, Dragonfire, which then became Whitecap. Was Charlie when it was Whitecap? It was Charlie Layton's boat. When it was Dragonfire, it was Hinkley's boat, and they they had a rock, rock star crew. Uh, 
Then they built a second one, Foundation, which is also a competition. And the competition boats had a seven foot keel, which you can't have on the South Bay. So when I did, when we did up mine, uh, what we did is we took what they had done, rolled it forward one more generation and did it on a centerboard boat. So that was my fourth and final, final boat. But we got, we got her in uh, April of 96 is when we took delivery. And I just sold it about a year ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that's the boat that you did your uh, transatlantic races on and, and, and a bunch right, of other right. races, right? Yeah, we did, we did, three, we did three Bermuda races hmm. on the Morgan 38. And, and then we did 11 on Jacqueline 4. You know, we did a number of other near shore races, like the around the island race. We did 15 of those. We were first in class eight times, and we won the whole thing, 165 boats once. Wow. Uh, the uh, Jacqueline Four, which is the Inkley Southwest 42, uh, we did 11, 11 uh, Bermuda races two Halifax races, a number of vineyard races, a number of Block Island races, Block Island race week, um, two transatlantic races, uh, two fast net races, and did, also did a lot of, lot of uh, a lot of cruising on her. Yeah, and yeah. Then I, then I did a lot of sailing on a boat called Roberta, which was a Hinkley 59. And uh, Bobby and Gene Wells owned that. Uh, Rusty Bradford, who at that time headed up service at, Hink at Hinkley, usually skippered it. When he didn't, I did. And then uh, I did the navigation and sail repair. Wow. And the program on that was in the fall, we would take the boat from Stonington, Connecticut to Bermuda, and then from Bermuda down to either Trinidad or Grenada. And then in the spring, we would take it from um, either St. Martin's or St. Thomas up to Bermuda and then up to Southwest Harbor. And that, you know, every year it was pretty much the same thing. Wow, that's quite quite a nice uh, little circle you're doing there. Yeah. And I, I use that as my test bed for all my uh, racing software. Uh-huh. Okay. Also did a lot of, did the sail repairs on that boat. Rusty would fix everything else. Mm -hmm. uh, and we always had a great, great, great crew to go with. Right. Yeah. Right. So, you know, let's, let's talk a little bit about crew. So when you're doing these campaigns on your boat, right. you're the captain. So you get to pick the crew and, you know, how do you, how, how do you sort of do that? <laughs> What's your process? Well, one of the, well, let's start off with what some of the problems are. One of, one of the problems is you got to find somebody that can take off for a month. Right. Okay. <laughs> and you need young guys on the foredeck and uh, you need a combination of skills. You got, you have to have one fix it person who could fix, you know, just about anything. Uh, then I would go, I had a, I had a group that I sailed with that, there was about 16 or 17 or 18 in that group. So I'd usually get like three or four or five from that. 
then I'd have to get another whatever to get it up to seven. Okay, and I I I looked. I had a blog on the New York Yacht Club website looking for crew. Yes. All right. Uh, word of mouth. Uh, and then I I would pick. I would take and interview them. And then I would have them interview two or three of my regular crew. Mm, yes. Because it's not only important that that person likes the people he's going to be sailing with, it's also important that, that I get various opinions on, is this person going to work out? So, and, and we, we've, we've gotten some great, great sailors that way. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's one of the interesting things about picking crew particularly yeah. for, for longer passages, you know, not only do they have to have the skills right. that you're looking for, but you have to have this level of compatibility because you're right. together for 24 hours a day for 10, 15, 20 days, whatever it is. Yeah. But most of them have small boat experience. They have a lot, they have a lot of racing experience. Yeah. If you, if you look at the uh, 2015 transatlantic race, uh, I had uh, myself, my daughter raced with, races with me, pound for pound. She's the best sailor in the family. Uh, then I had uh, another friend, Victor Gansey. So that was the three core group of mm -hmm. the core. Uh, ben Norman had ra raced with me in the Fastnet race. So I had experience with him, excellent sailor. Uh, Patrick Gett. Patrick Gavin, Patrick Gavin uh, had uh, was a professional sailor, so he could fix anything. All right, then the, the the seventh member of the crew, I actually replaced somebody. You know, we we race we sail like 800 miles before the transatlantic race to shake the boat boat down. Mm. And yeah. really get a feel for the crew, because once that, once you leave the dock, you got them. <laughs> They're with you. Yeah. Uh, so the, the seventh seventh person, uh, Eric Irwin, uh, was a graduate of the Naval Academy, was a professor at the War College, had skippered a nuclear sub. You know, he and I had been talking since January, but. It, it was always either he was he had he had a billet and wasn't available, or I thought I was didn't need anybody else. Yeah. But it, one per one person that I thought was going to be pretty good wound up not really pay, paying attention to details, and I I had just some sort of reservation in my back of my mind on him. So on the last double overnight, like that was a three hundred mile offshore. We go out 150 miles and come back 100. Yeah, I uh, had both of them on the boat, and it was, it was a no-brainer. And uh, Eric was the guy. Yeah, yeah, he was a tremendous sailor. And, yeah, because that's like, you know, when you're captain of the captain of the vessel, you have yeah. a lot of broad responsibilities. Right. Uh, and talk to me a little. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to ask you sort of about uh, what you do about sort of s what's your safety regiment or protocol? 
what, what, when you bring your crew together, what type of briefings do you do, uh, et cetera? Well, first off, I have a priority list. Three things, safety, have fun, and be competitive. And in, and in that order, most important thing is safety, and then have a good time, and then be competitive. Um, every year we always look to, how, what can we do to make the boat go faster or us have to sail less distance, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you know, as I said before, you know, everybody has to get trained. You know, we have to do uh, safety at sea, in the water training. Okay, we have to have two people that go to uh, first responder uh, medical course. Yeah. Wilderness first responder. Um, and, and then it's just practice, practice, practice. So what oftentimes when you enter these organized races, um, they have sort of a, you know, a set of requirements that people right. have to do these. Right. Now, the ones that you just mentioned, like sort of the first aid skills, safety at sea courses, is that typically a requirement of the organizer or was that your requirement? That's that's their requirement. Got it. Okay. The re different races have, you know, depending how far offshore you're going, uh, you know, it can it, it depends on how strict they're going to be on it. But, yes. Right. Yes. Now let's let's talk just a little bit about the the transatlantic races. I think right. you you were in two of them, if I remember correctly. Yes. So approximately how many days does that take? The first one took 19, 19 days. Uh huh. The second one took eighteen days. We actually sailed further that in that race than we did in the first race. Yeah. We averaged like seven and a half knots, which for a, a boat with a thirty-one and a half foot waterline, it's pretty that's pretty fast. fast. Yeah. And that's that's a good example of safety. When we the first couple of days of that race was like champagne sailing, ten to fifteen knots, and Wind was like after the beam. You know, we had a came across a pod of uh, Atlantic white-sided dolphins, which numbered probably a thousand. And then when we talked to the experts in that area, they said they've seen pods as big as ten thousand. Wow! So it's really amazing. You, as far out as you can see, there were dolphins, and they they just kept coming at us and coming at us and coming at us. But it, uh, from a safety standpoint, and it's a, sailing is a great, a lot of fun, but if you're not careful, bad things happen. In the Bermuda race this past year, one the skipper of one boat, Morgan and Marietta, uh, didn't wasn't hooked on. They had a rogue wave, washed him over, and he they couldn't get him back. They got well, he eventually got him back. But he had passed away. Yeah. So you just got to be so careful. Anyway, we had the th first three days of champagne sailing. Then this low rook came in and it started intensifying. And it was about 750 miles across. And that low was pressing up against the big high. The winds in the center were projected to be over 60 knots. And I, I decided life is. Life is too short. I'm not going to do that. 
So the expedition software, you could simulate, you know, plug in. Well, I don't want to experience winds over 35 knots, you know, and it would program out a course for you. And that's what we did. We jog, we jogged to the uh, east or to the uh, well, no, to the south southwest southeast. Mm -hmm. I jogged to the southeast and got about 80 miles further out from the center of the low. And we still saw winds, you know, as high as 46 and probably touching 50. Wow. And waves that were 15 to 25 with an occasional 30 footer. Yeah. Yeah. So this, this particular race, this transatlantic race leaves Newport, Rhode Island, if I remember correctly. Right. It leaves from and Newport, Rhode Island, and it goes to the Lizard, which is on the south coast of England. Yeah. And it's just west of Plymouth. Okay. So do you sort of take the the great circle route, kind of like the airplanes? You yeah. follow the airplanes? If, if, you, the if, you, if you've ever flown, flown to uh, Heathrow, yeah. it's about the same route. Okay. Okay. Because the further north you go, the closer the longitudinal lines get, and the shorter the distance will be. Yeah. Now, I, I have flown to Heathrow uh, numerous times, and I can remember sometimes seeing a, f a lot of white, uh, uh, on, not clouds, but, you know, frozen water. Frozen uh, water. Did you yeah. have to deal with icebergs? Yes, we had we had to deal with ice, icebergs, and it was an exclusion zone, which mapped out where the Canadian ice, ice charts projected there were going to be icebergs. So you had Got to stay it. south of that. And which, that was that, that which, was initiated by the organizers. That, that yeah. They they defined that exclusion zone. Right. Yeah. yeah the, there was one for Nantucket Shoals. There was a, a mark you had to honor at Nantucket Shoals. Then there was one a little further out for the right wheel breeding area. Mm -hmm. And then there was a, the one for the icebergs. Hi, listeners. I hope you enjoyed that uh, conversation with Bob as much as I do, or I did. And, uh, Please uh, listen to the next episode as well. Uh, it's not out yet. It'll be out uh, in, a, in a week or so, as I normally release uh, podcast episodes uh, every other week. Um, as always, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, as I've mentioned before, uh, you can also now find these podcasts on YouTube. Uh, just search for Sailing the East in YouTube, and uh, you can listen to them there or in your favorite podcasting application. And we also have a Patreon page if you'd like to support the podcast. Uh, you can find that at Patreon slash Sailing the East. Uh, thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, tell your friends about it and do a share. We really are growing our, our audience now, and we really appreciate all of our listeners. So thanks again, and uh, see you in the next episode. Thank you.